Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, back to Matthew chapter 4. Ordinarily, uh, my practice on a Monday morning is to sit down before the text and work my way through the next preaching pericope or passage of Scripture, however the Lord seems to have laid it out, and we we work through chapter 4, verses 18 to 25 last Sunday. So normally I should have began with the Beatitudes uh, this morning, the the eight of them. Um, Something sort of interrupted that flow for me this week, and a very dear friend of mine sent me a text message uh, Sunday afternoon, and he had watched the service online and of course, told me what an amazing sermon it was indeed. Uh, I'm kidding. And there was one sentence at the end of his text message, and he said, however, some of us aren't great fishers. I think probably every single one of us can identify with that statement, can't we? I think I know for sure that I frequently feel the same inadequate, insufficient. You know, in fact, Moses did. As the Lord called him from the burning bush, Moses standing there is looking for every possible excuse to get out of this call. (laughs) And on the third time, the third attempt, the Lord is telling him, everything he's going to do through him. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses simply said, Please, Lord, please, Yahweh, I have never been eloquent. Or maybe, maybe you feel a little, a little bit like the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Who is sufficient for these things? Maybe, maybe you have sat under a minister who has effectively berated you. Why aren't you sharing the gospel? Maybe you've sat under another minister who said, attributing it to Francis of Assisi, share the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. If you're not using words, you're not sharing the gospel. Or maybe you've sat under another minister who looked at a passage like Matthew 18 and said to you, you just got to use the right lure. Some of you are fishermen. You know whether to use a lure for a a bass or a crappie or a white perch as you might prefer. Um, If you'd have talked to Peter and Andrew and James and John about fishing lures, they would not have known what you're talking about. You see, they use nets. It's quite clear, isn't it? It was a big net. It's a net that they threw that had lead weights around it. They obviously weren't environmentally concerned as we are. That sunk down to the bottom and they caught whatever got caught in the net. And you're made to feel as though you're inadequate because you may not know which lure to use at the right time. 
this morning that the message really is quite simple. As we look back at Matthew chapter 4, I want you to understand that Christ Jesus is not building a rec league basketball team. He's not looking out amongst humanity saying, I could really use that guy. Man, if Kanye West would just come to Christ, think of, think of the testimony, all the people that would come. Or maybe he would divorce his wife. We don't know. I think that might have happened to Paul, as a matter of fact. We'll talk about that another time. As we look back at this text this morning, I want you to notice that when Christ calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, just three simple things. Christ issues the call. Christ provides the means to fulfill the call. And Christ orders the result of the call. In other words, the whole emphasis is on Christ. Let's read the text together. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4. And we're just going to read verses 1 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and God, we come this morning simply to acknowledge that all of our sufficiency comes from Christ Jesus. We bring nothing in our hands. We have nothing to bring. Um, we add nothing to you. You are the self-sufficient God. You are the uncreated one. We come as a people who need all things. We are needy. Thankfully, in you, through Christ, by your Holy Spirit, you have infinite resources. We ask for that today. Prick our hearts, Father, encourage us, strengthen us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we think about verse 19 of chapter 4, and my friend messaged me last week, and immediately these words came to me when he said, however, some of us are not great fishers. I immediately thought of verse 19. That's just the Lord's way. Notice what the Lord said there to Peter and Andrew. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you, do you, know what the, do you, do you notice what the emphasis is on there? Who's doing the acting in the calling? Yeah, it's Christ. He, he's, and essentially, he's saying, follow me and I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. Follow me. Come after me, and I will show you what I can do through you. He hasn't noticed anything in these men. They are 
merely passive recipients of Christ's gracious gift. And together we're going to observe, as I said, that Christ equipped these men. He gave them the means to fulfill their mission. And in some sense, He guaranteed a catch. Notice first of all that Christ equips His people by His Holy Spirit. The emphasis there, follow me and I will make you all fishers of men. These men are the recipients. They are on the receiving end of what Christ will do. And as you work through the Gospels, one of the things that you've probably noticed, if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, probably there's been a moment where you've scratched your head and said, who would have chosen these guys? You see, the evangelists, the writers of the Gospel, they spare no moment of pointing out the complete inadequacy of these men. Let me just give you one example. In Matthew, in in the Gospels, there are two feeding accounts. You know that. In Matthew 14, Jesus fed 5,000 men. And in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus fed 4,000 men. And when we get to those two accounts, the disciples are recorded as asking the same question. You see, Jesus fed 5,000 men. And the disciples there, they said, well, Jesus, where are we going to get food to feed all of these people? And Jesus demonstrated His miraculous power in feeding the 5,000. Just a chapter later, there are 4,000 men who are hungry. And Jesus says, will you feed them? And the disciples asked the same question. This has caused some commentators, some analyzers to insist that what's happening here is the disciples are recording the same story twice. They're saying there's no way that these men observed Jesus feed 5,000 people and then got to the 4,000 and asked the same question. In fact, one man says the stupid repetition of the question is psychologically impossible. Actually, it is a simple demonstration of the difficulty that the disciples had accepting this reality. It's a demonstration that these men are men like you and me. They're not the most competent. Jesus did not go to the academy. He did not even go to the synagogue and say, that guy preaches really good. Follow me. He went down to the seashore. He got the most unexpected men to follow Him. Why? To demonstrate His power. This is the demonstration of His power, not theirs. These were not exceptional men. In fact, you've probably spent many a Saturday morning with men just like these at Hardy's around coffee. Ordinary. Or consider Paul. Bold Paul. Strong Paul. Who recorded 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, that when he went to Corinth to preach the gospel for the first time, that he was quaking in his boots. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that moment where you've had a conversation with a friend and you said, this is an excellent opportunity to bring up the name of Christ and you feel like this? Can you relate to that? Paul did. These men did. Peter ran away when someone asked him if he associated with Christ. But Paul's letters indicate that he thanked God constantly for the conversion of the churches. Why? Because he knew that if God saved anyone, if anyone was saved through the ministry of Paul the Apostle, that was a work of God. Because he was not an eloquent man. It was ultimately God's work through his preaching and teaching. I... When I talk to my father, who is an eternal optimist, and he'll inevitably ask me how things are going at the church, and I say, well, they haven't run me off yet. It's still early. And he every time will say these words to me. He'll say, son, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. You've heard that before, haven't you? My dad says that every time to me, and I believe it's true. Christ has not called you into his kingdom because he needs your particular skill set. He's called you because you need him. And he demonstrates his power by taking folk as feeble and as frail as you and I are to turn the world on its ear. If you believe that you are personally insufficient to convert men to Christ, congratulations. You've made an accurate assessment. But is Christ adequate? Is the Holy Spirit impotent only through you? Certainly not. We learn also, secondly, that not only will Christ equip you, giving you the motive, but He also gives you the means to accomplish this mission. Secondly, Christ provides the means of our evangelistic effort. How are we to engage the call which Christ has placed upon us? To turn the world on its ear. Notice, when Jesus called these men, He did not immediately send them into the mission field. We think of the, some of our friends who've been converted to Christ, maybe in college, and you immediately, three months later, you think God's calling you to China. It's time to go. Pull the reins back. Let's tell you what to say first. Jesus did not immediately send these men into the, to the mission field. First, He trained them. He kept them with Him for three years so that they might observe Him, observe His ministry. Why? Because they needed to conduct the ministry 
saying what he told them to say, and in the, in the way that he delivered it, with gentleness. Notice the words again, verse, chapter 4, verse 19, follow me and I will make you. In other words, I will do the work in you. I will give you the means that you require. And after the Holy Spirit came upon these men, their evangelistic efforts took different forms. You think of Peter in Acts chapter 2 who stood seemingly on the doorsteps there and proclaimed Christ, preaching. Or you think of Paul who went door to door, preaching and teaching Christ to the people. There was one key point. These men preached and taught the Word. In your lap right now, is all you need to have an effective ministry to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your family. Christ, later we're going to get to the parables of the kingdom. And He'll talk about the sower who went forth to sow and He scattered seed broadly. Do you know what the seed is? It's the Word. And without that man's work, without his effort hoeing and and watering, the seed bears fruit. The Word is just like that. It bears fruit wherever it is sown. We trust God's Word. We trust the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we seek to bring the Gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon our homes, our places of business, our cities, we do so by means of God's Word. You do so trusting that He will enable you by His Holy Spirit to apply the Word in the right way, in the right time. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Listen to what he said. And not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you hear that? If you're concerned that when you open your mouth to to give the Word, you're going to give the wrong reference. You're going to pick the wrong passage. You're not trusting the Lord. In fact, God would be pleased to demonstrate your inadequacy in bringing a person to faith because it shows His power. It shows that the whole adequacy, the whole sufficiency comes from Him alone. He is the one taking the Word. Christ gives us the means of our evangelism. It is His Word. Very simply, I want you to do something with me here. Take your Bible and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Inevitably, We turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 if we want to do an apologetics conference. We want to teach people how to defend the faith. We'll look at this because the word apologetics comes from 1 Peter 3, 15. Give a defense. Give a reason. And inevitably, I'm, there will come a time where I look out upon you and I say, be ready. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. 
But importantly, this morning, I want you to notice one thing. Let's read, picking up in verse 14, because I want you to see the whole sentence. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's writing to a people who are politically oppressed, beaten, scourged, and caused to be silent. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know that in that sentence, in that phrase, there's one verb. There's one verb. It isn't give a defense. It isn't show a reason for your hope. The one verb, the main thought is this. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, the rendering is sanctify Christ. Do you know how you give a defense for the faith? You sanctify Christ in your heart. That's the qualification. You set Christ Jesus apart in your heart as holy. You begin by honoring Him as holy in every facet, in every aspect of your life. The one who does that is ready to give a reason for the hope that is in Him. This is the qualification. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, enables us to sanctify Him in our hearts. That's the first step. We recognize that Christ Himself makes every ministry effective. Every ministry that is effective is only effective because Christ has made it so. Why didn't Paul ever go away downcast in Philippi. Why didn't he lament the fact that people beat him in response to the Gospel? Why don't we find recorded in Scripture Paul writing in his diary, Lord, I must have said the wrong thing. I didn't say enough. Maybe they didn't like the tone of my voice. Maybe they didn't like the way I looked. Maybe they didn't like the manner in which I presented it. Maybe I should have had more holes in my blue jeans. Why don't we have anything like that? We don't. Because Paul recognized that the complete effectiveness of his ministry or the perceived ineffectiveness came from Christ. Christ saved whom He would. Why did Paul never doubt because he understood, as you should, that Christ determined the effectiveness of his evangelism. Christ equips us for ministry. He gives us the means for doing evangelism in our community. And thirdly, lastly, he orders the result of our evangelistic effort. Again, back to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says there, commanding them, follow me 
and I will make you fishers of men. Now, when, when, when Jesus said that to them, certainly he's telling them, I'm changing your vocation. Guess what? You used to be fishermen of fish. Now you're going to become fishermen of men. I'm going to make you fishers of men. It was a change of vocation. But Christ is also telling them the end result of their mission. What I'm sending you out to do is draw men. Draw men to me. He is saying this effort, his effort through them would reap a harvest. Guess what? I'm going to make you fishers of men and what I call you to do, you will do. The effectiveness of our work in our community. It's not a reflection on us as a church. The effectiveness of George Whitfield's ministry or of Charles Spurgeon's ministry or of R.C. Sproul's ministry is not a reflection on those men. It's a reflection upon our great Christ. They were faithful to preach the Word and God was faithful to make it effective through them. What Jesus is showing us here is He calls inadequate men so that through inadequate, insufficient, ignorant, stumbling, bumbling men, He can declare His glory, His power to save. Christ issues the calling, He provides the means, and He orders the result of our evangelistic efforts. Do you look at evangelism a little bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? In other words, are we just looking to save a few souls before the ship goes fully under? Is that what we're doing? What if you believed that community welfare was directly connected to the success of the gospel? What if you believed that adequate selectmen was directly connected to the success of the gospel? What if you believed that fair responsible elections was directly connected to the success of the gospel? What if you believe that fiscal responsibility and potholes were directly connected to the success of the gospel? Would it change the way that you focus on bringing Christ to bear in your neighborhood? Because all of these things are connected to the success of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, men, men who have come to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ don't cheat in elections. Men who have come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ work their way off of state welfare. The economy improves. Men rule wisely 
to the honor of Christ. I'm asking you to believe that everything you hope for for your children and your grandchildren, the success of a nation, the success of a world, of politics, of economics, of the environment, all of this is connected to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And apart from the coming of Jesus Christ's kingdom on this earth, none of these things will ever look good and righteous. And if we as a church believe these things are necessary, we will look like a people who are seeing where God has planted us. The hobbies, the interests that He's given us, where we work, the families that we have, and seeing how we can apply the Gospel of Jesus Christ there. Sanctifying Him in our lives. Let me give you just a few practical pointers. In Jeremiah 29... The prophet is telling the people when they are in Babylon to sit down and get comfortable because you ain't going anywhere for a while. You're going to be here. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, he tells them, therefore, how they ought to conduct themselves in captivity. What ought they do? He gives them some pretty simple pointers. I want to point to one though in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the good of the city. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And guess what? That of your children and grandchildren. If your city does well, your people will do well. And I skipped over one line. God commanded them, and pray to the Lord in its behalf. My first challenge to you is, are you praying for Macomb? Are you praying for Summit? Are you praying for Magnolia? That the Lord would give gospel success to these cities. That the Lord would raise up godly ministers to fill every church. Second, don't pack up just yet. I'm always compelled by The National Guard, the Marine commercials where there's a hurricane or a war going on and you've got this scene of people running away. And then they switch it, this, the scene switches over and you see these men running to the trouble. My first response, my first reaction when things go south is I want to run. But what happens if all Christians run from the bad places? What if the Lord has planted you in a bad place so that bit by bit, the bad place might be transformed through the Gospel of Jesus Christ into a Garden of Eden? Don't pack up just yet. Third, little application. Notice where God has already planted you. I don't think the Lord through this is intending to, to make you change your vocation like He did for Peter and Andrew. But I think you ought to observe, where's the Lord put me? What organizations am I a part of? What families do I spend time with? How about the people in my business? Can I take somebody to lunch? Can I walk across the street to my neighbor just to get to know them, not to slap a, a tract down necessarily and say, turn or burn? But to be intentional. 
To have a gospel centricity in every aspect of your life. Every client you call upon. What if the end was not the sale, but the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would that change the way your life looks? If not, praise the Lord. If it would, praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm optimistic. I have hope for the future. Because I have hope in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he can take people like you and me and transform a whole society. If you don't believe me, go home and read about 17th century Geneva, Switzerland. 19th century Manhattan. And see how the Lord can use a few committed people who observe where God's planted them, build intentional relationships for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not us. But we praise you as Paul went on to say, our complete sufficiency is in Christ. And we know that the success of our ministry is completely dependent upon you. So, Father, we pray and ask you, one, help us to set apart the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts as holy. Two, prick our hearts by the work of your Spirit. Give us a vision as a family, as, as husband and wife for our neighborhood, the street we live on, the block where we call home, the place where we make our money, to have a vision for the gospel of Jesus Christ there for our church. Looking to the ant who's diligent in his work, may we also be diligent in our labor to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we're planted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.